Good morning. Uh, very good, very good. So, um, my name is Steve Bateman, and um, occasionally I get the privilege of being able to share with you from God's Word things that He has placed upon my heart that I pray that uh, resonate with your own as part of our time together. Um, I'm going to make a shameless plug. My daughter works for the same organization that Brian works for, and so I really, I, I'm proud of her for the care that she provides as part of the uh, overall care and the hospice and elderly and so on. And um, I'm just really excited. I would encourage you to be a part of it. It can be a very confusing thing that once learned, you'll find a great deal of comfort in what services are provided. That was ad hoc. I just made that up as I came up here. Um, so even before I get started, I really feel like I need to put a disclaimer out there to what I want to share with you today. First off, let me make a disclaimer with regard to those who may have been at the festival yesterday and thought, oh, this living water, it's not a bad place. Maybe I want to learn a little bit more about it. Why don't we go tomorrow and witness what they do and be a part of their people when they're singing and they're preaching and come away with some conclusions? Everything except the preaching has merit. I'm a guest speaker before you, all right? So if you, if you come and you're thinking, this is what the preaching's about, don't, don't do that, okay? If you don't like it, don't make an overall conclusion. Just come back and try it again next week. Fair enough? Okay, good. The second thing that in terms of a disclaimer is, when I have spoken in the past, it's usually been part of a series. You know, we're going through the book of Romans or whatever the case might be, and I get plugged in there somewhere in the middle. And I tell you, that's easier than what I'm experiencing today. You know, when you're plugged in the middle, you got a passage of Scripture, you simply talk about it and you unpack it and you try to make it in a way that there's some application. But Pastor Mike and the leaders were kind enough to say, Steve, you can preach on anything you want, which isn't easy because when the guide rails come off and you give it to somebody like me, you just don't know where you're going to go. So what I thought I would do today is speak to you a little bit about something that the Lord has placed upon my heart it uh, speaks of a concern that I have, which probably leads itself to a third disclaimer. Have you ever listened to that stuff, you know, and, and at the end of it it says, the opinions that were made by such and such are his opinions, and they have nothing to do with the opinions of so on and so forth, right? That's my third disclaimer. What I'm, what I'm sharing with you today is just my opinions, my thoughts. I, I believe that they're biblical, but I don't wish for you to walk away thinking that they are representative of the thoughts of Living Water Community Church and its leadership. Three disclaimers. We're comfortable. I feel better. Do you? <laughs> good, 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 good. All right, so what we're going to do today is I want to talk to you about church and culture. Okay, when you hear me use the word church in my discussion today, what I want you to think of is what I would call the institutional church. It's the little C that's kind of big, even so. You know, it's the Catholic tradition and the Protestant tradition and all of its various uh, faith traditions that come into this, you know, the Methodist, the Presbyterian, the Baptist, and so on and so forth. It's the church like the church that you and I are attending today in a broader point of view, okay? And when I mentioned culture, if I had done it again, I probably would have 
talked in terms of just sort of the, the societal pressures that are up against that institutional church, the stuff that's going on in all of our lives that we'd like to think is out there. But here's what my concern is. I think it's in here. And as a result, I'm afraid that if we are not kind of deeply rooted in our faith, when those pressures come across us, they'll lift us up from our faith and blow us in a direction which is completely contradictory to it. So I think it's important at least we, we get that out there and think about it and talk amongst each other so that we can help one another you know, dig down into our faith and be deeply rooted into it so that we are not easily persuaded by all of these philosophies and so on. Okay? Which is sort of where I start. So our tradition here at Living Water Community Church is to stand. So if, if you have your Bibles and you would uh, turn to Colossians 2.7. I've chosen this as the passage of Scripture that will provide a bit of a backdrop to where I'm going. Actually, I'm, if I knew where I was going, I would have said Colossians 2.6 and not 2.7. Now, when Paul was writing to the church of Colossae, he had some concerns, and this is where he went with it. He said, basically, therefore, as you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophies and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. Do you see what he was concerned about? He refers to these things as philosophies, the general thought of people, the love of wisdom, if you will, and how it was very much empty and it was deceptive in what it might communicate to you and not to be caught up in the elemental spirits of the world, and not which are not according to Christ. You may be seated. So where I'd like to take us today is just really three things that are on my mind that I think will kind of uh, give you a concept of where my head's at. I want to talk a little bit about what a Christian worldview is. Okay, so that we have a bit of a, a, a foundation from which to work. And then I want to look at how culture has influenced the church and continues to do so. And then I'll bring it home with regard to how we might, as the church, influence culture. Okay? So let me start you with what I would call a Christian worldview. Now, my background is engineering. And as a result, sometimes when I'm just trying to figure something out, I get my quarter-inch grid paper out, and I draw pictures. I, it's just the way I think. Maybe you can relate to that. Maybe you think I'm nuts. That's okay. I need to draw pictures trying to simplify things, especially when in my head they become very complicated. And so one of the things I wanted to do was to say, Steve, how do you view the world? And I came up with a picture. I, my picture was a triangle, and I must say that I started the triangle with regard to God. He is definitely a large part of how I see the world, so I put him at the pinnacle of my triangle. Of course, I couldn't leave out me, because it's my world, right? 
And then I was forced to reckon with the fact that there's me and there's God and then there's other people. That usually messes everything up, but that's okay. Can't do anything about it, right? Got to live with them, got to deal with them, and so on and so forth. But this is, this is my world. It's your world, too. Now, I was tempted to put pets because I got pets, but I want to leave them out for the sake of our discussion. Okay? Okay, that was supposed to be a little funnier than it was. <laughs> Me, God, and the world. And I started with what I believe to be a fundamental truth. God is actively reaching down to me. My relationship with God didn't start with me trying to figure him out. I would know nothing of God had he not chosen to reveal himself to be known. Right? God is active in this pursuit. It's fundamental to my Christian faith and likely yours as well. You know, it starts obviously in the garden where God creates man and woman. And he nurtures them in the garden, walking with them, so on and so forth. There's this big explosion where there's sin, and suddenly the things that were created good are corrupted. But it continues its pursuit. In the Old Testament, you see God continuing to reveal himself through the prophets. And even right there in front of them, you know, talking through Moses and being heard by the others as a result. And we fast forward into the New Testament, and we have God's great revelation of himself through his son, Jesus Christ, whom he sent to us, reaching down to us, that we might have a relationship with him. God is always doing this. But that doesn't mean that, again, from my worldview, I don't have any responsibility in the mix. I most certainly do. I've got to be doing something if it's going to be a relationship, agree? And so I, I, I said, well, what is it that I do? How can I summarize this idea of my responsibility in the relationship? And it really boils down to dying to oneself. That's how we foster a deeper relationship with God who is leaning down to have that relationship with us. And what do I mean by dying to ourselves? Well, I've probably best seen through its opposite. What does it mean to live to oneself? That's a natural inclination. We all get that one, right? See, I, I said to myself, I believe that, that all the decisions that you and I make have as an end, a, an ultimate desire, that as human beings, we simply want to be happy. I really think that that's why we do what we do. Can you think of an alternative? I mean, and so when we talk about living for ourselves, it's our strategy to become happy. And when we are faced with all the alternatives here in this world, there are many. I wanted to be happy. I wanted to be happy, which made my decision to become an engineer. I felt that somehow by becoming an engineer, I would assure that I would be able to make a living that paid me pretty well. And I felt that if I was paid pretty well, I would be able to support my family I felt that I would be able to provide for my children any education that they wanted. I felt that I could afford a very big house, which I knew would make me quite happy. I felt that I could buy a very nice car, which would eliminate all those frustrations I had as a kid when they never ran. I did all of these things, making these decisions, I, living for myself, even though I camped it out in trying to say I was living for my wife. Or, but this was for me, and I was living to myself because I wanted to be happy. And here's what I discovered. It didn't work. 
And you'll discover the same as you live for yourself, striving to make yourself happy in the ways of the world. But here's what you find in a relationship with God when we die to ourselves. We, we are moved into a whole different realm of thinking where I, I don't want those things. I have found in my relationship with God, I am discovering his word. I am learning his precepts. I am faced with his law. I am faced with, with the reality that if I really want to be first, I've got to be last. I'm faced with the reality that if somebody slaps me on one cheek, I've got to turn the other. And initially, that feels so weird and out of touch because I'm really used to living for myself. But here's what I find. When I live for God and I do these things as according to his word, I find happiness. I find a happiness which can live beyond what the world presents to it. And this then by virtue of what God has done in my life and the forgiveness that I have experienced for all those other ways that I was living, where God has given me the presence of his Holy Spirit within me that has changed my mind to think differently about all things. I love his word. I love to speak with him. But why do I love it? Just because he told me I need to do it? No. I find happiness and joy that the world can't take away from me because of that relationship. So bring it on. I'm not done dying to myself, but boy, I'm telling you, I'm never going to give up on it because it brings me joy. That's one line of my worldview. Now I'm faced with another one. I got to interact with others. <laughs> you guys... So what is my responsibility in that relationship? And frankly, I think it's no, no more difficult than blessing them. You know, when I was living for myself, my interaction with you had a singular purpose, and it was to use you for my satisfaction, right? That's what we do. I try to manipulate your thinking to make me feel better about me, right? I try to get you to do what I want you to do because it makes me feel like I'm right, you're wrong, and thanks, thank goodness you got on my sheet of the paper. That's what it looks like without the concept of blessing them. But what do I mean when I talk in terms of blessing them? Well, all the decisions and all my actions have a purpose when interacting with other people. I want to bless them as I've been blessed. I want to love them like I love myself. You see, when God said that you should love the Lord God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, as the first commandment, right? Well, that's easier for me now because I experience his love in that relationship. And as a result of that, I love him and I love me and it's working really well. So if I'm going to bless others, I've got to love them like I love me. And all of my actions should be precipitated upon the reality that I'm trying to nudge them, to kind of bump them toward a relationship with God, get them around the corner, if you will, right? Because I believe God is, is leaning down to them just as much as he's leaning down to me. And so when I interact with them, I'm not interested in getting you on my sheet of the paper. I'm interested in getting you on his sheet of the paper. I want you to get into his plan, get caught up into his will. Why? Because I know you'll have joy there, right? That's the way I like to look at the world. That's the way I like to look at my relationship with God 
in my relationship with other people. It has purpose. It gives me meaning. And I'm good with those things. It's built into us as humans. But then I got a little bit confused about other other people. You know, the first other people that I was talking about was my family, my friends, the people that I work with, the folks that my circles intersect with. But there's a whole other group of people that those circles don't intersect with. And yet I feel like I still have to have a responsibility of having some influence into that, which is really what I'm talking about here. Those other, other people is what I'm referring to as culture, right? And I have, I have to have an influence on them. The church has to have an influence on them. And when I use the term culture, this is what I mean by it. It's the beliefs, values, and behaviors of a group, along with the symbols and stories that are accepted by that group. We are familiar with culture. You had it in your family. Have it still in your family, right? You have beliefs that are you know, unique to family, yours, mine. You have values which were given to you likely from them, right? You even may have symbols and various artifacts that are representative of that culture. We have them here, right? We theoretically share a similar belief. We have similar values. We have certain symbols which are reflective of those things. And other churches have them as well, even though they very well may differ from ours. What do we mean when we're talking in terms of influencing culture? I mean, you really can't not do it. I'm pulling my notes now because I'm ready for them. <clears throat> when we're working with culture, culture is that thing that provides for us a sense of identity, right? It's, at its core, that's what it, really what it's about. It, it provides a sense of feeling and connection and belonging, right? It gives meaning and purpose to our lives, and we are influenced by cultures, our family, community, and so on, and we also are influencing those cultures. How do we influence them? We influence them in a number of different ways. We influence them by what we post on social media, the bumper stickers we slap onto our cars, where we shop. I'm a Target guy, you're a Walmart guy. Well, you know, our paths can still cross. The things we buy. I prefer this brand versus that brand, right? Some of you might be Phillies fans. Oh, I did this yesterday. It brings it to mind. So I see this guy walking at the festival. He's got this great Phillies garb on, you know, ball cap and everything. And I, I, I try to get close to him so I can say, Red October. Does nobody know what Red October is? Huh? The Phillies are in the playoffs. Did you miss the game last night? Oh, my goodness gracious. But why do I do that? You know, I'm trying to connect with this guy based upon the symbols that he's wearing because it, it's where I belong. It gives me a sense of connection, and that feels good. We do the same thing, right? We do the same thing. And, and even the clothes that we wear, and I was tempted to wear Philly's clothes today, but that would have been way too weird. We are driven by our desire for belonging and purpose in our pursuit for happiness, and it makes us susceptible to culture's influence on us as we attempt to change it. For Christians, that work is to be supported by the church. That's what we're here to do, to give us a sense of how we influence culture without being negatively influenced by it. But there's a problem, 
And part of that problem is, is that the church, in some respects, has lost its power and authority and influence to do that the way we used to be able to. So where we're going next really has to do with looking at what's happened to the church as a result of culture's influence and maybe even the church's own bad behavior. Where we're at in this is that the church has lost much of its credibility and influence in culture. Several weeks ago, I came across an article written by Carl Truman. He said, faithfulness is the future of the church. And he unpacked this idea a little bit better. He essentially said there are four reasons why the church, the institutional church, has lost its credibility. And not the least of which is the fact that its hypocrisy and immorality has become public knowledge. I mean, none of us are unaware of the Catholic Church and all of the press that came out with regard to the abuse that was levied on people through the priests. Unless we think it's just the Catholics, right now the Department of Justice is investigating the largest Protestant denomination in the Southern Baptist Convention, of which I was a part of, for all of its hidden sexual abuse that was never brought to bear. When the church is guilty of such things, and the hypocrisy that comes along with it, society looks at it and says, why would I listen to them? The second reason that the church has lost its credibility has a lot to do with just the way society is acting these days. As Truman wrote, it's a general tilting away from authority found in institutions. We love autonomy. We really don't like people telling us what to do. And that's become more and more prevalent as people are looking for an alternative authority in their lives versus institutions. A third thing which has happened is the reality is that society doesn't need the church to function the way it does. I mean, we might think, oh, yes, it does, but society doesn't agree with you. It's a voluntary institution. You don't have to be here. And what's happened then as a result is church leadership is beginning to change its thinking with not necessarily being an authority in your life, but being a satisfier of the consumers who are showing up. And sometimes they've quit showing up as a result. The fourth thing is technology, a, a place that I love. But you don't have to be here to enjoy church. You can very easily get up, stay in your jammies, grab a cup of coffee, get onto YouTube and find yourself a service anywhere in the world where the music is excellent, the preaching is good, and you'll never have to leave the comfort of your home. And all these things, according to Truman, have led to the church not having the credibility and authority that it once enjoyed. And it makes it susceptible and weakened almost to be an absorber of those cultures around it. And so what does he say the future of the church is as a result? He says this, it'll continue to lose credibility and influence. The church is simply going to get smaller. Which has been evidenced, you know, much through the pandemic, but a recent um, study done by the Hartford Institute of Religion 
suggested that more than 25% of churches in America, uh, no, excuse me, a third of churches in America have lost more than 25% of its attendance in the last two years, from 2019 to 2021. We see that in the larger churches. We see it in the smaller churches. Where'd they go? They've tapped out, perhaps, for a variety of reasons. But I think Truman's on to something here. The church is going to get smaller. And the church has to be prepared for how society is viewing it. It's no longer relevant. It's out of touch with reality. It'll be cast as a bigoted, delusional organization that just really doesn't understand the truth according to society's beliefs. Do you believe that? I believe that. It's happening. You can simply read about it. All of these things have weakened the position of the church and made her susceptible to the waves and the tides of culture in our country, which is making its way into the church, bringing with it empty philosophies and so on. And that really is my biggest concern and why I'm talking about these things today. Back in 1951, Richard Niebuhr wrote a book called Christ and Culture. It was a very popular book. I was forced to read. I, I read it in seminary, and uh, I really liked it. And so I kind of stole from his framework. If, if, you know, the criticism against Richard Niebuhr was that he probably shouldn't have picked Christ, he probably should have picked the church or Christianity or these types of things. But he said there are essentially three ways that the church interacts with culture. One of the first ways is it's just steadfast against it. And the second way is it's of it. And the last way is it's above it. Okay, so what did he mean or what do I mean when we talk in terms of the church being against culture? Well, if you think of the Anabaptist tradition, the Mennonites, and so on and so forth, this would probably be the best example of those who are against culture. They dress in a certain way, they live in a certain way, and their, their, their great desire really is to not be influenced by culture in any way, shape, or form. They're sectarian. They've kind of drawn a line around them and say, we don't progress outside of this, but we stay close to ourselves within it. When I first became a Christian, early on, I was a member of the Brethren in Christ Church, and I have to confess to you, this is very tempting for me oftentimes. I loved the church. I loved its piety. I loved its, its strong sense of holiness. I liked feeling like I was part of a smaller group that wasn't being influenced by the world. But I was troubled over the sense that I felt like you can't help but influence the world because I was working for a living and I was interacting with it. But this is what we would mean and what Richard Niebuhr had in mind when he talked about the church's decision and how it's going to influence the world is simply subtract itself from it. When we talk, however, in terms of the church of the world, this is where the church has willingly embraced society's pressures. It's succumbed to the temptations associated with wanting to be a part of the activities in culture, not being seen as against it. And I have two things that I want to talk about here in terms that I will use 
just to be able to bring forward the concepts that I have in mind. And the first has to do with this idea of, of wokeness, or perhaps better placed under the heading of social justice. And when we talk in terms of social justice, I'm just going to pull from this. What I have in mind is likely what you're aware of when we refer to the same. When we talk in terms of social justice, we might say that we might say that Steve can't find a second page. Boom, there it is. What we have in mind is sort of society at large and how it looks at societies and institutions, right? Mostly through those institutions. And when we have in terms of justice, what we're really thinking of is what is right regarding the fair distribution of wealth, opportunity, and privilege. What tends to unite the followers of this movement is their common experience of being victims of injustice or oppression or sympathy for those within the groups. And some have even gone so far as to characterize social justice movement as a new religion. The sovereign nations, or whatever they were called, met back a couple years ago, and you had these religious leaders sitting in a, um, in a panel, and they said, social justice is indeed a new religion. Right? Where original sin is characterized by white privilege, to be saved, one must be born again or woke. And lastly, it comes to sanctification, and we are sanctified through activism and virtue signaling. And what I mean by virtue signaling has to do with the practice of publicly showing how good you are. You know, you might post on social media all the great causes that we support. On a corporate level, you might see a company proclaiming its support for the movement and anything within it, just to gain public favor. Or a church might proudly portray the colors of the rainbow in support of the LGBTQ initiatives. When we as a church embrace culture and make it our own, what happens is, is that the ideals of those movements take over from the mission the church was given. And it drifts from its divinely appointed mission to the mission of the movement. Michael Yosef, in writing a book, Saving Christianity, says that the agenda of the postmodern Christians is nearly identical to the political and social agenda of the secular left. That's what it looks like when the church is of culture. But we have a second movement that is equally problematic, in my opinion. We have the concept of the church of culture from the far right, if you will. Here we have what I'm referring to as Christian nationalism. The members who propose Christian nationalism are pushing for the United States to be a Christian nation. Christian nationalists gain its strongest support from Republicans who identify as evangelicals. And within that group, 78% favor formally declaring the U.S. as a Christian nation. Most Christian nationalists are older, coming from my generation or my parents, were white, and they share a common belief that they're dis discriminated against due to the color of their skin. 
those caught up in the Christian nationalist movement have conflated their patriotic and political views with their religious ones, creating a new religion out of the mix. The presence of crosses and Bibles kind of coupled with the people that we saw there on January 6th provide a little bit of context of what I have in mind when referring to the ideas of Christian nationalism. It shows up in our church in a lot of different ways. For example, um, I've, I'm vaccinated. I confess it before you all. Please don't think badly of me. But I had at least one Christian that thought badly of me. He quoted me scripture. God did not give us a spirit of fear, but a power. And he went on to talk in terms of somehow being vaccinated, fully vaccinated and protected in the blood of Jesus. And I don't quite know how that worked. But do you see how it invades the church? Political values, right? All kind of mingle themselves with religious ones. It kind of shows up as well in, in one telling me that I don't see how a person could be a Christian and anything other than a Republican. Really? Okay. I mean, you know, I, I, I don't bring this stuff to you as an expert. I bring it to you more as an experiencer of it, you know, and troubled. We have to be really careful about these things. Social justice and Christian nationalism kind of represent, represent the ends of a, a cultural spectrum that the church invites in when it wants to embrace society's culture as its own. But what happens when the church attempts to cater to societal pressures, giving the culture of the world a foothold in its church? It runs the risk of being a church of a different religion, a new one, which is not the Christian religion. I like this that I came across through uh, Andrew Sullivan in writing for America's New Religion. He said, now look at our politics. We have the cult of Trump on the right, a demigod who among his worshipers can do no wrong. And we have the cult of social justice on the left, a religion whose followers show the same zeal as any born-again evangelical. They're filling the void that Christianity once owned without any of the wisdom and culture and restraint that Christianity once provided. That kind of summarizes where I'm at to this point. We once had influence. We once had, had, had the ability to, to hold the high ground and to share with others the gospel and model it in our lives. But it's been given up through immorality and hypocrisy. And since we've made this void, culture has rushed in to make up for it without any of the truth and the wisdom and the virtue associated with our Christian belief. So where do we go from here? I think where we go from here is in what I believe to be the only true way for the church to look at herself relative to culture. It's got to be above it. It doesn't necessarily mingle with it in ways in which it's polluted by it and it loses its purity. Right. We, we have to think in terms of, of, of where even Truman took us in that article I mentioned earlier, faithfulness is the future of the church. We have to agree on certain things to hold true to our faith and be deeply rooted sufficiently enough that we are not carried away by these winds of truth mixed with lies, which is mostly lies. He suggests there are at least several ways that we need to go about our approach as a church. 
First, he reminds us that credibility with the world is not the mission of the church. We are not called to be like the, the world so that we can be the church. In fact, you know, if we are not in contention with society, we are likely not being the church. And we have to be comfortable with that. We have to stand up for what we believe in. Be willing to take the persecution that comes on the heels of it. Because someone once said, blessed are those who are persecuted for my namesake. We have to believe that that's our identity. We want that so that we can draw deeper unto God, become more like Christ in our endeavors. The second thing, and I think this is super important, that the church, rather than focusing on trying to get the culture to be like itself, it has to focus on its own. A recent survey conducted by Lifeway and Ligonier Ministries implied that 73% of evangelicals believe that Jesus is the first and greatest being created by God. 73% believe that. Maybe you do. I don't know. Nearly half, 43%, believe Jesus was a great teacher, but he wasn't God. Now, seriously, how do you attend a church and be taught by that church and come away with believing that? Something's missing. When I read this, and I thought about leading the men's ministry, I decided to change things up. I really believe that we are just not really, really good at understanding what we ought to believe. And this brought it home for me. So what we did, at least in the men's ministry, is we went old school, right? Bring your Bible. We're going to start in the book of Mark, and we're going to talk about what we read to unearth these spiritual truths, these scriptural truths, which are so fundamental to our faith. And what we do in a group is that we talk about them. The idea there is that if I'm not believing correctly or if I'm a little bit off to the left or to the right, I have brothers around me that will force me to think about it and come to maybe a different conclusion. We have to be teaching one another this way. We've got to know what the scriptures say and what they mean to us in life. And I think this has been a major failing for the institutional church. We just have left the responsibility of teaching to the world and how it might learn you. Last thing that I'll mention here with regard to um, Truman's article is that the church really has to become... I missed a couple things here. Well, I'll go back since I'm still talking about teaching. Do you remember what uh, Paul wrote to Timothy? He says, the... There it is. Not Paul, just the author of Hebrews. He wrote that for... For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness since he is a child. But solid food is for the mature, for those who have the powers of discernment, being able to discern between good and evil as a result of the constant practice that comes as a result of being taught. Last thing, to influence culture, we need to be a loving community. This is really how we have to engage it, not in a super adversarial way, but as a loving way. The Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, potentially enduring evil, 
or patiently rather enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness, that God may perhaps grant them repentance leading to a knowledge of the truth, and that they might come to their senses and escape the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. Three things. Quit fighting to influence the culture so much that it agrees with you in all points. If it agrees with you in all points, it's got you. You don't have it. We have to be teaching the fundamental truths of the scriptures, and we can't let anyone walk out of here not believing that Jesus is God or that, if, that he was some created being. It blows up the whole gospel as a result. And lastly, we need to be loving. We honestly do. We don't want anyone to have an interaction with us that they see a side of us that we are not pleased that God would know that we are his, he is ours, and we are pursuing the character of Christ in our lives. Let me say this in conclusion. Contrary to the social movements that evaluate people based upon their political affinity, ethnicity, gendered fluidness, or the common experience of oppression, Christianity operates on an individual basis. In the Christian faith, one is not measured by what group they belong to. Instead, they are measured on how closely their character aligns with the character of Jesus Christ. Christians must not identify with any group which would force them to com compromise their biblical beliefs, values, and behaviors. Instead, they must hold to them, guarding their hearts and minds against the influence of culture and lies and its deceptions. And they must realize that just as their calling is unique and personal, so too is their account before the Lord for the things done in life, whether good or evil. Hearing well done isn't based on the group that you belong to. It's really based on whether you belong to Jesus Christ. Let me pray. Father, I thank you for the opportunity to address my brothers and sisters and friends that are gathered here, and I pray, dear God, that I have done nothing that would interfere in your work in their lives, but rather, God, they would sense that you are reaching down to them, and if there is repentance which has to take place, that you are even the author of that, and that you would, through that, draw them into a closer communion with you and empower them to be much more effective in loving others as themselves. I pray, dear God, that your word not just go forward, but be deeply rooted in us, that we find our comfort, our purpose, and our meaning, not in this world, but in you alone. And now as we move from this time for our service until the next, where we will take up our offering, I pray, dear God, you would bless that offering. Use it in ways which advance your kingdom and provide the necessary resources to help other people love you as we do. And I pray and ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.